This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the newest edition in the Compliance Podcast Network, my latest podcast, Compliance and Coronavirus. As the voice of compliance, I wanted to start a podcast which will help bring both clarity and sanity to the field of compliance, the compliance practitioner, and indeed the compliance profession during this worldwide health and healthcare crisis taking up a variety of topics as diverse as working from home to sporting events, to the role of the board of directors, to crisis management, to the role of supply chains. We will look at all of these in this podcast. If you have a topic you'd like covered on compliance and coronavirus, please let me know. I'd be happy to do a podcast on it. We continue Exeter Week on compliance and coronavirus with Brandon Daniels, president of Global Markets at Exeter. He takes a look at security, supply chain, and the management of data, not only in the era of COVID-19, but as we move forward into the second half of the year into 2021. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I'm extraordinarily thrilled to have with me Brandon Daniels, president of Global Markets at Exeter. Brandon, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back. So, Brandon, I've uh, wanted to visit with you about some of the things that you and your team at Exeter are seeing at this point around coronavirus health crisis, COVID-19, but also what you may see. I used to ask people in Q3 and Q4, but I think I need to now ask what you might see down the road in 2021 and beyond. So with that, what are two or three of the top questions you guys are getting from your clients about where we might be now, particularly around compliance? Yeah, so one critical area uh, that we are uh, receiving questions about um, is the area of compliance reporting. So everyone is under substantial constraint at this moment in time. Uh, first of all, there's not a free flow of data. Second of all, uh, there are fewer resources with which you have to conduct business. Uh, and third... Um, the complexity of uh, executing some of the compliance audit functions that you would typically conduct in person uh, is um, increasingly stressing uh, or is under, in, under increased stress uh, when we are remote. So those same functions that we used to do in person that we used to sort of have um, at the ready uh, now are under uh, significant constraint. And so um, one of the things that people are asking us about is how do we interact with our regulators and discuss openly and effectively how we can mitigate these constraints, how we can still comply with reporting requirements, how we can still uh, assess uh, suspicious activity and report that on a routine basis uh, whilst not um, hurting our data privacy policies or data privacy standards uh, in terms of taking data out of the bank uh, or out of the corporation, right? Uh, and so what we're seeing is that many clients are trying to establish uh, and trying to create a more collaborative interface with their regulators uh, in order to meet regulatory demands whilst also understanding that they are under substantial constraints. 
The second thing uh, that has come up quite a bit uh, in this COVID crisis is how do you still execute those projects that you've been mandated uh, to execute? Um, We've seen uh, regulatory enforcement start to kick up around the globe again. Um, We've seen the Monetary Authority of Singapore uh, take some severe actions against uh, companies, uh, for instance, uh, in the recent months. And I think globally we're going to start to see a um, a resumption of global compliance enforcement. Now, uh, what does that mean? It means that you have to thread the needle of executing major projects that used to be done on site, off site, right? Those could be major remediation projects. Uh, those could be major technology rollouts. Uh, those could be uh, ramp ups of your compliance staff uh, that have come off the back of an investigation and a Department of Justice uh, inquiry, right? And now what you have to do is to walk a line between policy and requirement. And people almost have to rewrite policy in order to meet requirements. And so um, what we're getting from people are questions about how to be creative, right? How do you still assess uh, files uh, that you have uh, from your compliance department when you don't have the authority to transfer that information uh, to remote professionals outside of your corporation, right? How do you how do you still manage that review? Can you do review or compliance checks with anonymized data is one of the questions we're getting a lot um, because people want to adhere to data privacy standards but still execute these big uh, remediation projects. And then the third question I'm getting a lot is related to uh, actually, and this is this – is, um, something that we've seen from some of the biggest corporations in the world is how to start to incorporate supply chain risk management in what they've doing in what they've been doing with third party risk management. And that's one of the most interesting questions I've heard because, you know, in almost every single uh, briefing from the president in much of the uh, sort of, Uh, much of the reporting you've seen around COVID, you've seen supply chain risk management come up as a hot topic. Well, people in the corporate sphere um, were largely managing third parties from a uh, risk and compliance perspective on the anti-bribery, anti-corruption side, or they were managing them on just cyber. uh, And then finally, you know, price and performance. Now, in terms of supply chain risk management, uh, they have to think from a uh, or in a, in, a, in a really critical way about how that supply could be subject to sabotage, how that supply uh, could be subject to problematic capital, uh, especially as it starts to enter some of the major critical infrastructure sectors like the medical sector or the um, uh, uh, bulk power system or the energy sector, right? You have to start thinking about how, you know, your supply of critical componentry uh, could be subject to sabotage. That's a completely new world. 
Um, and so those are the three major things that I'm hearing. How do I report? How do I collaborate with my regulator? Um, how do I still execute these large projects off-site and in a remote manner? Can we get creative about how we manage data? And then three, I'm hearing a lot about supply chain risk management uh, enter into the compliance conversation. Brandon, if I could turn to maybe uh, 6, 12, 18 months out, what are, uh, what? are I guess one of my observations uh, has been that uh, ideas, issues, and topics that may have arisen in 2018 or 2019 and were going through a normal life cycle of ideas have uh, sped up exponentially. And we are at true inflection points on many different things. Data comes to mind immediately, but um, and there really is a new normal, and it's here and it's coming. And uh, so I was wondering, what do you see in maybe that time frame that uh, companies are really going to need to consider that they were told they should have considered over the past 18 months or so, but now they have to? So what uh, what do you see really on that realm? One of the things that was done um, in, for instance, Graham uh, Leach Bliley is to establish standards through which you could manage data um, in a outsourced um, model while still um, adhering to the standards that were required in order to protect that data. And what we're going to have to do in order to meet the needs of 12 to 18 months from now is rethink and get really smart on how data security actually works, right? I think people don't have a good concept of what data residency is, what VPNs are, and whether or not that actually serves as data transfer, and how to uh, create policies that um, effectively protect, protect data no matter where someone is, right? And then to get comfortable with the fact that those protections are real. Uh, and so I think that there is going to have to be a, um, a real uh, analysis of what are the required protections, what are the standards that are going to be necessary in order to allow much broader uh, remote work capabilities. I think today many people think of the premises as the, uh, the walls around which your data and your information is contained. I think people are starting to recognize that the premises is, is an abstract concept when we're talking about the cloud or we're talking about data and machines, or we're talking about networking. Uh, your premises, your physical premises, only in the context of having literally a storage drive that's offline, uh, the premises is, is um, it's ethereal. It's, it's not real, right? Uh, and so what we need to do is determine how to regulate a virtual premises, how to make it so that people can work across multiple jurisdictions, multiple states, right? You've seen the California uh, Data Privacy Protection Act come out, right, and, and come into force. How do you work across states and adhere to those standards if you're a 
California-based company or dealing with data uh, uh, that contains residents from California. How do you work in the UK, uh, the United States, and EU and keep everything aligned to a GDPR-focused model, right? A GDPR-adherent model. And I think we're going to have to go extraterritorial, not in a bad way, but in a good way, and say there is a... Uh, a reduction of GDPR that is the EU cyber standard, for instance. And you can apply that at a machine level, no matter where somebody is in the world, right? You can make it so that they can only view the data. They can only manipulate the data remotely, but everything is stored in the country of residency. And that does not constitute a data transfer, right? Um, Because you're just not going to have the ability to travel over to the EU or have people from the EU travel over to the United States with that kind of fluency. uh, And we're going to lose specialization. We're going to lose the ability to get the best person for the best work. Um, And that's, that's detrimental to our economy. That's detrimental to our businesses. So I think we're going to have to get smarter on data privacy standards, and we're going to have to start to make them operationally effective no matter where the computer sits in the world uh, and make it so that you can have virtual private sessions that adhere to different country models and that the EU regulators, the UK regulators, the US regulators, the Singapore regulators say, yep, you meet our standards. And so therefore you can uh, view and look at data from, I don't know, Vietnam, right? So that's one. The second thing is, before, before you get to number two, could I maybe follow up, uh, instead of data privacy, data protection? And uh, several years ago, I interviewed the uh, uh, CISO of Coca-Cola, and he told me uh, that he, he basically used a risk-based approach uh, looking at the data, which was the highest risk to the company. And he said it plainly. You know what the highest risk data to Coke is. I know what it is. Every bad guy in the world knows what it is. That is the one thing I cannot let be breached. And so I have the strongest data protection around that. And that to me was a simple risk-based analysis based upon the value of the data. Does that concept still hold? Or with this change that you just talked about in terms of data privacy, does that also change the calculation for data protection for the top data? Do you now need to have a much more layered or nuanced approach? What you just mentioned, I call the crown jewels approach. And I, and I, I, I think it's, I think it's smart. I think it's practical. And I don't think with the model that I'm mentioning that changes, right? Um, if you have a data set, which is the proprietary information that is the engine or the fuel to your organization, uh, that should be maintained in a exceptional uh, place of cybersecurity, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily change the idea that you would uh, nuance the, the privacy or protection controls across jurisdictions, but for the real crown jewels, you may actually never put it on the internet, Right. Um, you may, you may have physical controls around it, uh, that are above and beyond not putting it or making it available to, um, any, uh, out, 
outside network sources, right? Um, so there is always that risk-based, risk-based approach. You can't slice it too thinly. Otherwise, your cyber model becomes so complex that, you know, the uh, cost of your organization would be twice of what it is today. But you can say, hey, here's tier one data. And tier one data sits offline. It sits only available to certain people. And there are physical access controls around it that, you know, are uh, similar to a SCIF in the federal government, right? It's top secret. And then, you know, there's this whole segment of information that we need to understand um, where it's being accessed, why it's being accessed, and how it's being accessed. And that, you know, is subject to enhanced cyber controls and individual, you know, literally down to the person permissioning. You only get permission to it to the extent that you absolutely need to do. Uh, And it has to go through, uh, you know, a human process in order to be validated. And then you've got a segment of uh, data below that just needs to be subject to different privacy standards or different communication channels or different platforms. So I do believe in a risk-based approach. I think there is a crown jewel uh, in every organization that should be held and, and, and guarded. Um, and, uh, but I think below that, you know, a sensible, a sensible risk-based approach is, is important. Okay. Back to number two. Yeah. So, um, the second thing I see is that COVID has set off, and this goes to my third point on what we're hearing from corporates and, uh, and, and seeing them ramp up around um, in terms of compliance and, and risk. Um, I'm seeing the different um, security measures that global powers are taking starting to infiltrate the compliance minds and security minds of CCOs and CISOs, right? Chief Compliance Officers and Chief Information Security Officers. Um, and that's because you're seeing things like uh, the UK ban of Huawei in the 5G infrastructure. Uh, you're seeing EO uh, 13920, uh, which uh, is starting to regulate the ability for um, adversarial capital, adversarial powers um, that could potentially sabotage our uh, energy sector uh, being used in the bulk uh, power system. Um, you're seeing uh, things like sex- Section 889, um, which are starting to roll out and create additional uh, cyber requirements and um, uh, componentry and supply chain requirements uh, inside of the defense industrial base, which isn't a small group of companies. Again, uh, it's estimated that anywhere between 160,000 and 300,000 companies are in the defense industrial base. If you think about that from a United States economy perspective, that's a huge volume of our GDP. And then uh, you uh, are also seeing things like the reform to uh, medical device supply chains and pharmaceutical supply chains. Uh, starting to create additional requirements uh, for compliance officers and CISOs that they weren't thinking about yesterday. For instance, the foreign ownership uh, control and influence 
analysis that they now have to start doing on their uh, underlying supply um, uh, foci for short uh, is going to increase uh, the burden substantially uh, that they're going to be under to comply uh, with United States government um, regulations. And I mean, with the uh, pronouncement in the UK of uh, the Huawei ban in uh, 5G, you're also going to see right um, increased uh, controls in the UK as well from a supply chain perspective. So you zoom out on what that does inside of the corporate market, and it creates a an, an incentive model uh, to execute a lot of your work to build supply chains in. Uh, either the United States or an allied partner jurisdictions, uh, or it creates an incentive to build out much tougher cyber standards and much tougher compliance standards that you can monitor and measure on an ongoing basis so that when you're subject to scrutiny, uh, you can survive that scrutiny. And that's a major overhaul that the corporate market is going to see in the next 18, 24 months um, and will be, from my perspective, one of the most impactful ways in which uh, the um, compliance officers are going to have to start driving uh, the way that uh, their companies do uh, business. And also, it's going to be um, a huge opportunity uh, from an economic growth perspective for a lot of CISOs and CCOs to show that they've got controls, they can get a much larger, much larger share of work because they as a downstream provider to some of the you know big companies on the bulk power supply uh, would, would be very attractive. Brandon, uh, it strikes me in listening to that, particularly around the corporate sector, if we look at uh, critical or uh, high security uh Corporate functions in America, obviously, healthcare, pharmaceutical, uh, energy production, both in uh, bulk energy creation, but also in uh, oil and gas development, uh, construction, manufacturing, really almost any industry that is not a consumer product could be deemed to be uh, in the national interest of the United States and subject to this type of scrutiny that you just described. Could we see it move literally into that level of corporate America? Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Um, the the you don't have to look far uh, to get a sense of where you know Treasury has already gone um, uh, to control or or to protect um, you know American interests. Um, uh, you don't have to. You don't have to do a deep dive analysis to see where what bellwethers are there. If you just look at, um, I'm sure you've uh, had a chance to look at um, the uh, parameters of the uh, CFIUS, um pilot program, uh, specifically the implementation of the uh, Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, the FIRMA, um, where they have laid out initial NAICS codes against which they want to start uh, reviewing all foreign transactions, right? They want to uh, apply additional scrutiny 
um, at that Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. And they include things like aircraft manufacturing, right? That's NAICS code 336411. They include uh, aluminum refining. Uh, they include uh, nuclear uh, electric power generation. Uh, they include primary battery manufacturing. They include telephone apparatus manufacturing. So when you think about the span of companies that could be subject to this supply chain risk management area as an enhancement to what we're doing around third-party risk management, you could conceivably see almost every industry being impacted that's, as you mentioned, not a you know uh, fast-moving consumable good, right? Um, and uh, that is going to create a, uh, a completely different lens, a completely different spend category um, in the area of compliance. Um, and again, it's either going to drive an incentive for much stronger U.S.-based supply chains or ally supply chains, uh, or it's going to create um, uh, much stronger compliance controls when you've got outsourced operations. So, Brandon, um, do you have a number three? Uh, so in terms of a, a number three for COVID, um, I see that leaders are um, leaders of, of businesses, leaders of compliance organizations, you know, leaders across the board um, are starting to think about um, the way in which they manage differently. I think uh, – People are moving to technology-based interactions um, in a much more uh, robust way, and it is creating a level of intimacy in working relationships that wasn't there before. I mean, right now, you and I are speaking, you're coming into my home, right? Uh, You're hearing the vacuum, you're hearing my kids, you're hearing you know, my family, you're hearing my dogs, right? Uh, That level of interaction, that level of private and public facing personas getting integrated, right, is is increasing the um, requirement for leadership um, to, uh, to inherently uh, think holistically about their employees. And so I think what you're going to see over the next 18 to 24 months and something that's going to be embedded in our culture uh, from here on out is a much more evolved sense of the person when it comes to our employees, right? I think that's important for cyber standards. I think that's important for workplace management. I think that's important for, you know, much more robust remote work is that you have to get to know people in a deeper way because if you're not face-to-face every day, if you don't see the body language every day, if you can't stop in the office, then leaders have to become uh, much more engaged and they have to understand their people at a deeper level to create that same connection that is almost taken for granted when you're working in person. Well, Brandon, uh, this has been a great conversation, but unfortunately, we are near the end of our time. But I hope as we move forward into the second half of this year and perhaps even 2021, I might be able to ask you to come back and visit with some of these topics again. Of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you, Tom. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance and Coronavirus. This is the only B2B podcast which brings clear and sane information for both the compliance professional and the business executive. If I could ask you uh, to do one thing, if you could tell one person about this podcast, I'm trying to get the word out uh, about this most unique podcast in the compliance podcast network so if you could tell one person about it send them a copy send them a link and do something uh, to help me publicize this podcast i would greatly appreciate it compliance and coronavirus is a production of the compliance podcast network and it appears tuesday wednesday and thursday of each week thanks again for listening and i hope you'll join me again for another episode This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.